And good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. What a great song that is, right? Full atonement. Can it be? Yes. Yes, it can be. Hallelujah. What a Savior, right? And that last, that last bit about when he comes, our glorious King, all his ransom home to bring. Then anew, his song. The song that we're singing now, anew we will sing his song. Hallelujah. What a Savior, right? It's good. It's good. It's good. Do you have your Bible this morning? Good. You need to turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Did you hear that? Chapter 4. We are, we are making progress in our study of Romans. Into a new chapter today. And we're excited about all that God has uh, to teach us uh, in the days ahead this morning. Thank you, Bailey, for, for uh, reminding us that, that we don't read the Word. The Word reads us. It's important. It's important to know that when we approach the Scripture, that's the way it works. Us, and we want that to happen today. Last week, as we finished up chapter 3, we saw a text that gave us three applications of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. If you remember, we talked about that for a long time, for, for about a month. We talked about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Three applications through three rhetorical questions at the end of chapter 3, um, where Paul teaches us that this doctrine humbles sinners and it excludes boasting. One scholar said this, it is totally incongruous for us to boast, and to do so is to demonstrate that we do not have faith in what he has done, but rather that we are foolishly trusting in ourselves. And so we need to regularly examine ourselves, all of us in this room, whether we, whether we are children of God or not, all of us need to regularly examine ourselves to see if there is some kind of boasting, some kind of pride in the things that we have done, maybe even some kind of pride even in our faith. That look at the faith that I have rather than look at the Savior who has redeemed me when I am totally unworthy of his love and his gift. So rather than boast in ourselves, let us boast in the Lord. And I feel like we did that in here this morning. Um, started off on the right foot, not to us, but to your name be glory, right? So it humbles sinners and it excludes boasting. Secondly, it unites believers and excludes discrimination. One scholar said this, just as all men are equally condemned by God for their sin... They are equally offered God's gracious salvation through faith in his son. There is no place for prejudice and racism and discrimination in the church. When we look at the world, we should not see men and women who are from a different area, a different background, have a different skin color. We should see men and women and boys and girls created in the image of God in desperate need of a savior who can redeem them. That's the common denominator. We are all ultimately the same. Ultimately, we will all stand before God and be judged. Ultimately, the only answer is grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to examine ourselves again, see if there's any prejudice in us, and respond by preaching the gospel to all kinds of people, not picking and choosing who we think is worthy of the gospel, because the reality is we are not worthy of the gospel. But we preach the gospel to all kinds of men. Third, the doctrine of justification by faith alone upholds the law and excludes antinomianism. Antinomianism means no law. There's a tendency to receive this gospel of grace and cherish it and think that because we are saved by grace through faith and not working, that we just throw the law out the window as believers in Jesus Christ. And that's not the case. Paul will elaborate on that later on in this letter. But we need to remember that the law has a place for believers and the law is good and the gospel doesn't contradict the law. Rather, the gospel upholds the law, right? We don't depend on our working, but there should definitely be working in those of us who have had our hearts changed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So we need, to, um, we need to exclude 
antinomianism and recognize the place of the law. And again, that will come later in Romans. So no boasting, no discrimination, and no antinomianism. This week, Paul is going to continue to elaborate on the doctrine of justification by faith alone and defend it against several misunderstandings. And he's going to do this by Abraham's example. In other words, he's going to call Abraham as, as exhibit A to defend this doctrine and to teach us that it is compatible with the Old Testament. It is consistent with the Old Testament. What Paul is delivering in Romans is not innovation. It is not new. It is not cutting edge. This is the way God has always worked amongst his people. So over the next few weeks, I would encourage you uh, to review uh, Genesis chapter 12 through 22. I know that's a lot of text. Maybe some of you did that over the weekend um, because I posted on Twitter. Did anyone of you do this because I posted on Twitter? If there's even just one, it would thrill my soul. Okay, what's Twitter? Great. That's great. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cook. <laughs> anyway, it would be good to read the account of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 through 22 to remember these stages that came up in his life. In fact, that's part of why uh, we had Holly read from Hebrews chapter 11 a little while ago. It's because he, the author of Hebrews reminds us of these major stages in the life of Abraham. And if you remember, the common denominator at the beginning of all of those statements was by faith. By faith, Abraham left his home and traveled to a country he didn't know. No, by faith, he trusted in the promises of God that he could deliver a son. By faith, he offered his only begotten son, Isaac, on the altar, reasoning in his mind that God could raise the dead. Um, by faith, Abraham did all of these things. And we're going to learn today that it is by faith Abraham was justified and not by works of the law. So that's what we'll look at today. Paul is going to use the life of Abraham to contrast the gospel reality of justification by faith alone with the dangerous concept of justification by works. So in your mind today, that's what we need to be thinking. Uh, justification by faith versus justification by works. Next week, we'll see justification by faith versus uh, something else in the life of Abraham. But today, it's faith versus works in the life of Abraham. So look at it in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. This is what God says to us today. What then shall we say? that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Let's pray together. God, help us, help us today not just to understand this text. We, we do need your help for that. Help us today not just to remember all that you've already taught us. We certainly do need your help for that. But God, help us today to see you, to see your face, to meet with you and to hear from you. We want you to have your way in this room. We want you to have your way in our hearts. We want you to be lifted high. We want to respond today to the doctrine of justification by faith alone with worship. 
worship of the one who would justify the ungodly. That's who you are. It's incredible. It's amazing that you would justify the ungodly by grace through faith. Pray for your people who are in this room today. Help us to see this, savor it, enjoy it, cherish it, and respond in worship. And God, I pray for folks who are in here today who are far from you. They're lost. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They are under your wrath, deserving of your wrath. They have no hope of life and purpose and meaning. God, I pray that you'll come to them today. Teach them that you are the God who justifies the ungodly by faith. That you are the God who raises the dead. That you are the God who forgives sin. That you are the God who credits righteousness by faith. This is a great text today, this whole um, process that Paul is going to go through by calling Abraham to the stand as a witness for these things that he has been teaching. It's an incredible thing uh, that happens in God's word, and there's so much for us to see today. Um, there's a little bit in verse 1 of debate about how exactly to read this verse. It says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? There's some debate about what... Um, the phrase according to the flesh modifies, there's some people who would say that it modifies Abraham's connection with us. That Abraham is connected with us because he's, he's our forefather according to the flesh. Or maybe more particularly that he's the forefather of the Jews that Paul is talking to according to the flesh. In other words, some people would say according to the flesh is about the relationship he has with people. Other folks think that according to the flesh refers to what he has found. In other words, what has he discovered according to the flesh? What has Abraham discovered according to the flesh, Abraham who happens to be our forefather? Um, I really think the debate is not all that significant. Um, I don't think that we should get into splitting hairs exactly what according to the flesh modifies. It's probably best to understand this phrase simply as an appeal to the life of Abraham. To ask the question, what did Abraham find in this matter? What was the case as far as Abraham was concerned? Is the life of Abraham, in other words, consistent with the doctrine of justification by faith alone? Is God's dealing with Abraham consistent with the gospel Paul has been preaching in Romans chapter 3? The bigger question in verse 1 of chapter 4 is why does he call Abraham out? Why of all the characters in all of the Bible, in all of the characters in all of the world, why does, why does Paul call Abraham to the front and use him as an example? That's probably the bigger question, and there's an easy answer to that. Number one, Abraham was a hero figure, right? If you were a Jewish person in the first century, Abraham was your hero. He was not only your hero, but he was the founding father of Judaism. He was the founding father of the people of Israel. He was also the one who had received the covenant and the promises that God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and says, I'm, I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you into my people. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the sand on the sea and the stars in the sky. And in you, God tells him, in you, 
all the things that are revealed in Genesis. And that is a clear allusion to the Messiah who would come through Abraham's lineage, right? So God makes all these promises, makes all of this covenant with Abraham. But maybe the biggest reason why Paul calls Abraham forward as the example is that he was held in highest esteem by rabbis and other teachers in Judaism as the epitome of a righteous man. In fact, many people, maybe even most Jewish people in the first century thought that Abraham was justified by his works. In other words, most of the people who, who were um, spiritually minded, who were versed in the Bible, most of them would have said, Abraham did a lot of great things. And because Abraham did so many great things, because Abraham kept the law, in fact, there was a Jewish tradition that said Abraham kept the law before the law even existed. He fully kept the law and obeyed the law before the law was ever written down, which is pretty incredible, right? They would say that Abraham did all of these great things, and because he did all of these great things, the capstone being the willingness to sacrifice the promised son, Isaac, because he did all of these things, great things, God said, you're my friend. You're my friend because of what you have done. That's the mindset of most Jewish people in the first century. And that mindset is not biblical and is not consistent with the gospel, is not consistent with the scriptures. And Paul is going to say that that mindset is mistaken and he's going to straighten it out. All right. So it's huge that you understand that most of the Jewish people in the first century would have thought that Abraham was justified by his works. It's also important that you understand that Paul calls Abraham out to show that the gospel that he is preaching is absolutely consistent with the Old Testament. Paul is going to say, let's take Abraham, for example. Exactly how was Abraham justified? Was Abraham justified by works or was Abraham justified by faith? Indeed, Abraham was justified by faith. And so the gospel message that Paul is preaching is consistent with the Old Testament. And that's big, right? It's big because he made that claim. He said, listen, the prophets and the law, they agree with this. And so he's going to show it through the life of Abraham. You with me? So, Abraham saved the same way that we are saved. The way of salvation by God's grace through faith is no innovation. It's not a new thing. It's an old thing. And I read magazines about church leadership and go to conferences sometimes. And it seems like pastors are always trying to be innovators, come up with something new something fresh. And sometimes I react to that and say, hey, let's not come up with something new. Let's keep telling the same old story, the same old powerful story that has saved men and women and boys and girls for thousands of years. We don't need to come up with something new. God, there is nothing better that could come along, right? There's nothing better than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is there? No, so let's preach it. It's powerful. It's powerful. And God changes lives through the preaching of his gospel. So that's verse one. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, is found? In verse 2, Paul introduces a hypothetical um, that many people actually believe, uh, only to dismiss it. Look what he says. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Catch what he does there? The word if is a big word, isn't it? In all of life, the word if is a big word. And Paul says, if... If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Would you agree? Absolutely. And then he adds this, but not before God. He is putting this hypothetical out there that if he had been justified by works, he would have something to boast about. But then he says, that's not the way it works. Not before God. He may have something to boast about before men, 
But even the one who has a lot of good works has nothing to boast about before God, right? There is no good thing that we could do to justify ourselves to be able to stand before God and boast before him. And so Paul says, but not before God, because that's not the way it works. Paul will now go on to outline that Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. Look at verse 3. This is the heart of the argument. And I love the way he starts. He says, for what does the scripture say? Don't you love that? He doesn't say, how do you feel about this? Or what does the rabbi say? Or what do the people say on the street? When Paul has a question that needs to be settled, where does he go? To the scripture. And he asks this question, what does the scripture say? We need more of that in our lives, don't we? We need more of that. Rather than saying, oh, what does is, what is this famous preacher have to say? Or what does this friend of mine have to say? Or what's my mom have to say? Or my grandma have to say? We need to have more of this. What does the scripture say? Like We need to be those kind of people. We believe the Bible to be inspired and inerrant and infallible, do we not? We, we are called by the outsiders, people of the book, right? So why do we not appeal to it all the time? Why do we not appeal to it constantly? Paul says, what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say about, about Abraham's justification? What does the Bible say about it? I know what the rabbis say about it. What does the Bible say about it? And he says, this is what the Bible says about it. What does the scripture say? And then a quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is going to be foundational for the rest of our study of chapter 4, really for the rest of our study of Romans in general. So notice the importance of faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not Abraham did, or Abraham worked, or Abraham sacrificed, or Abraham followed, but what? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Notice also the concept of imputation. We've talked about imputation before, and here it is in this verse. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you read the King James Version, it says it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It was accounted to him as righteousness. This word that's translated in the New American Standard as credited comes from the Greek logizomai, which means to put something into someone's account. It means to make a deposit into someone's account, but there's a nuance of it that is very important for our understanding of the gospel. It is to put something into someone else's account that is not, does not inherently belong to them. So it's the picture of coming from the outside and putting something into the account of someone else that they don't deserve, that they haven't earned, that isn't from them, it's from someone else. Do you understand this? We do this sometimes, don't we? We do this sometimes in our relationships. Maybe, maybe you have a child who's off to college and, uh, and you kind of secretly put some money into their account, literally, right? Put some money into their account and then next time they go to the ATM, they're like, whoa, what happened here? That happened to me a couple times when I was in college and I'm thankful for those things credited to my account, which was not inherently mine, that I did not deserve and I was very thankful for it, right? We do this sometimes when people are in a crisis. We kind of quietly, behind the scenes, sometimes anonymously, we recognize someone has a need, and so we put a credit in their account. It's not something that's inherently theirs. It was given to them, right? It's counted as theirs. Once they go to the, once they go to the ATM and put the card in, it's theirs, right? But it didn't come from them. That's the whole picture that we're getting at here. And God's word says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to his account as righteousness. 
Notice that his faith was not righteousness in itself, but it was counted as righteousness. You tracking with me on this? So God is crediting to the account of Abraham a righteousness that does not inherently belong to him by faith. Let me say that again. God is crediting to the account of Abraham a righteousness that does not inherently belong to Abraham, and he's crediting, to his, he's crediting it to his account by faith, not by works. That's the doctrine that Paul is defending here, and he's saying that's how Abraham was justified. Look at verse 4. He's going to explain this. He's going to instruct us about what this looks like in verses 4 and 5. He says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So there are two ways to have something credited to your account. That's what Paul is teaching us here. Two ways that this can happen. One is by a wage, and that's what he talks about in verse 4. A wage is a result of what? Work, right? You know how that works, don't you? You come to the end of the week, and you've done all this work, and what do you expect? A wage, right? Because you have earned it. You have earned it. It's out of obligation that you receive the wage. It is not a gift. It is not a favor. It is not an act of grace. It is something that you have earned. Now, if justification worked that way, what would the picture be like? If justification worked like a wage, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due, what would it look like on that last day? Well, we would, it would look ugly, right? Let's be honest about that. It would look ugly because we don't have works to stand before God and say, this is what you owe me. But suppose we did. Suppose we did, what would justification look like on that day? Well, we would stand before God and we would make our case, would we not? We would say, all right, God, listen up. This is what I have done. I was a Sunday school teacher at First Baptist Church in Harrisburg. More than that, I was a deacon at First Baptist Church in Harrisburg. I went on 17 mission trips. I shared the gospel with 14 people. I did this and I did that. Now, this is what you owe me because of what I did. How many of you want to be part of that picture? That just sounds bad. In, even in the telling of it, it gives me the creeps to even think like that. But what you need to understand is every other system, every other religious system on the planet, that's exactly the way it works. You know, we, we've made friends with some, some Mormon guys this summer, and that's exactly the way it works with them. This is what I've done. Now this is what you owe me, God. Let me tell you, all God owes you is hell and wrath and judgment for all of eternity. He is not under obligation to save anyone. So what if? What if you were justified by works? It would be a wage. It would be an obligation. It would be earned. And you would boast before God. You would boast before God. And you would think that God owed you. But that's not the way justification works, is it? Thank God that's, the way, that's not the way justification works. But rather, justification is by a gift. So the second way to have something credited to your account is not by a wage, but by a gift. And Paul teaches us here that that's the way justification works. In verse 5 he says, but to the one who does not work, right? A gift is totally different. It's not a result of work, but a result of faith. Not a result of work, but a result of faith. He says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So a gift is not a result of works, but a result of faith. 
it is by faith. Now, for clarification's sake, I need to say that the contrast here in verse 4 and 5 is not between the worker and the non-worker. It's, it is between the one who trusts in his work and the one who trusts in God. And I want to make that clear because it would be easy to read that verse out of its context and think, Paul says we don't work. Paul says the life of a Christian is one who does not work. Well, that's not the case because he told us at the end of chapter 3 that the, that the gospel does not, well, look at the way he says it. Do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Right? So Paul is not, in the words of one scholar, he is not canonizing laziness here. But he's talking to us about justification, and he's teaching us that justification comes by a gift and not by work. Work will come later, won't it? Once we have received justification by faith, we will then work, but not to earn favor from God, but because we've been shown favor by God. So, justification is a gift, not as a result of works, but of faith. There is no obligation involved here. The essence is favor, gift, grace. The emphasis in all of this is on grace. All of those words like favor and gift have at the root in Greek, grace. Grace, grace, grace. And what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor, undeserved favor. And that's what justification is. So what happens if justification is like this? If justification is by works, we have this arrogant standing before God presenting our resume. But if justification is by faith, what do we have? Well, we have ultimate humility, right? Where we, where we come before God and say, I don't, I don't have anything. I don't have anything to come to you and present to you. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. Jesus kept the law. Jesus did it all, right? And I'm covered in him. Not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ, right? It looks like humility. It looks like worship. Why do we sing? Why do we sing when we come in this place? Do we sing because we've done so many great things? What if it worked like that? What if we came in and say, sang songs about, I uh, helped the poor people today, and I fed the hungry today, and, and oh, look at everybody, look at me, what I have done this week. Ridiculous, right? What do we come in here and sing? Not to us, but to your name be glory. Look at the great things he has done. He has died for our sins, he has been buried, and he was raised again on the third day. That's what we sing about. So, justification by faith alone leads to gratitude, worship, and humility. And maybe the most important part of this whole passage is in the middle of verse 5. He says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Him who justifies the ungodly. That is dynamite, isn't it? That God doesn't justify good people. Because guess what? There aren't any good people. No one deserves justification from God. But he justifies the ungodly. And how does he do that and maintain his holiness? Well, we learned that a couple of weeks ago, right? He can justify the ungodly and maintain his own righteousness because he justifies the ungodly by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son who stepped in as our substitute and our sacrifice and made propitiation. Remember all this talk? That's why he can justify the ungodly, and he does. He does justify the ungodly. One scholar said, God declares people innocent who are really not in themselves innocent. Let me say that again, because that's good news for you and I. That God declares people innocent who are really not in themselves innocent. 
The same scholar went on to say this. He grants them a status they have not earned and do not deserve. If you're a believer today, that should stir something in you, that he grants you a status you have not earned and you do not deserve. By faith, he grants you a status you have not earned and you do not deserve, and that should thrill your soul. You've been given something that you have not earned. A status of acceptance and beloved and forgiven and redeemed that you do not earn. And listen, if you're here today and you're far from God, you're lost and dead in your trespasses and sins, that phrase should be very hopeful for you. That he grants a status that you have not earned and you do not deserve. So the gospel is not deserve it, earn it, clean yourself up, and then come to him. The gospel is come to him in your brokenness, cast yourself before him, plead for mercy, like the, like the guy in the prayer, in the parable. We got this one guy who stands up and says, thank God I'm not like this guy, right? Look at all these things that I've done. I fast and I pay and I do and I serve. And then we got another guy over here, the tax collector, won't even look up to God, beating on his breast saying, God have mercy on me, the sinner. The sinner, not a sinner. The text says, the sinner. He comes before God and he says, I can't even, I can't even look at you. Oh, just have mercy on me because I know I am the sinner. And you remember the comment at the end of it, the explanation at the end of it? Jesus says, I'm telling you, that guy went home justified, not the other one. That guy, in his brokenness, in his casting himself on the mercy of God, trusting not in himself, but in God, who justifies the ungodly, that guy went home justified, not the other one who trusted in himself. That's why we read that text today, because it's this picture. So if you're here today, that's good news, right? It's good news. It's not be like that guy and say, look, God, look and reward me for all these good things that I've done. The picture is come before him like the tax collector in brokenness, beating your breast, saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he will. He does all that I have and more beyond that. He is a God who justifies the ungodly. Paul goes on, builds his case a little stronger by calling David as a witness. So we've got the hero of Judaism, the forefather of Judaism in Abraham. Now we've got the great king of Judaism in David. And he says, not only does Abraham teach this, but David teaches this. Look what it says in verse 6, exhibit B. Just as David also speaks of the blessing. This is the language. When he, when he starts talking about David, he starts using the, blessing, the language of blessing. David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm, a portion of Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a psalm that David writ, wrote, not written, um, like Psalm 51 in response to his sin with Bathsheba. You remember Psalm 51? Have mercy on me, O God, cleanse me. Against you and you only have I sinned, done what is evil in your sight. Psalm 32 is very similar to that. David thinking about how he's failed, David thinking about how he has sinned, David thinking about how he deserves God's judgment and wrath. And David comes to God in Psalm 32 and he doesn't say, God, I've done all these other good things though. Yeah, I did this whole thing with Bathsheba and then I killed her husband and, and I tried to cover it up and all this stuff. But I've done all these other good things. No, David comes to God in Psalm 32 and he says, I've got no hope unless you're merciful. I've got no good thing to bring before you to earn anything. All I've got is my garbage. I don't have any works. I just need mercy. I just need grace. And then he reflects on how good it is 
to be the recipient of mercy, to be the recipient of grace, not by working, but by believing. He says, blessed. Look what he says in the psalm in verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and those whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. With Abraham, the focus was on God crediting righteousness to his account by faith. In this passage with David, the focus is on not crediting to the account of David sin that he has committed. Do you see how those are flip sides of the same coin? With Abraham, he is given, put into his account righteousness that he does not deserve. With David, it is God not putting into his account the sin that he has committed. And that's good news as well, right? Forgiveness, free forgiveness is excellent news, I believe. Don't you? Blessed is the man who has not his own good works laid to his account, but the one whose sins are not laid into his laid to his account. That's the greatest blessing, isn't it? What is the greatest blessing you can think of? Like I, I fear for the church today because I think a lot of people would say, the greatest blessing God could give me is a healthy family, a stable family. The greatest blessing God could give me is a, a big house and a new car. The greatest blessing God could give me is some kind of thing on this earth. That is a lie. The greatest blessing God could ever give you is grace and forgiveness and salvation. That's the greatest blessing. So listen, if you have been saved, you are blessed beyond measure, beyond reason and expectation. You are blessed even if your family is falling apart and even if your house is caving in and even if you don't have a car. You are blessed. You are the most blessed person on the planet if you have been translated from God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, right? What, what do you think about when you think about blessing? You think about stuff or you think about the gospel, forgiveness and salvation? So here's the summary. Number one, does, does the case of Abraham validate the, the point Paul has made in chapter three that righteousness is by faith rather than by works? Yes, it does. One scholar went on to say, justification involves a double counting, crediting or reckoning. One on the, on the one hand is negatively, God will never count our sins against us. On the other hand, positively, God credits our account with righteousness as a free gift by faith altogether apart from our works. Double counting. Doesn't count our sin against us and counts Christ's righteousness to our account. Couldn't be better than that, could it? There's no better news. Like if I told you, hey, you won the lottery. It's not better news than this. Hey, your son that you thought was dead is back and he's alive. It's not better news than this. This is the best news. So here's the application number one. Do you believe in him who justifies the ungodly? Do you believe in him who justifies the ungodly? A God who declares people innocent who are really not in themselves innocent. A God who grants them a status they have not earned and do not deserve. Do you believe in a God who justifies the ungodly, not by works, but by faith as a gift? Do you believe it? Some of you do. Hallelujah. We'll talk about what you should do in response to this in a minute. But if you don't today, oh, believe. Believe in him. He is the God who justifies the ungodly. He cares about sinners. He redeems sinners. He came for the brokenhearted. He came to heal and give life and hope. He came to clean and restore and make people new. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. So if you're here today and you're lost, Jesus is the one who can change you. 
believe in him. And he changes you not by keeping a bunch of rules, but by trusting him, by resting your weight on him and what he has done. So I would beg you, believe in Jesus today. And if you already do, if you already believe in a God who justifies the ungodly, it's amazing grace, is it not? It's amazing love, is it not? It's incredible when you think about it. One pastor I was reading said this. He said, despite the fact that amazing grace is our favorite hymn, most people think that you just do your best, you'll somehow get to heaven. Hooey! Amazing grace is the best song we sing because it's the truth, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He gives us what we do not deserve, and it is amazing. And so what flows out of this? Worship flows out of this, right? If you, if, if you get a great gift for your birthday, what do you do? What your mom teach you to do when you're just a little kid? Oh, thank you, thank you. And if you get a really great gift, like, like Laura, uh, a few, man, this was 10 years ago now, was it not? 10 years ago for Christmas, Laura gave me this fantastic shotgun. I've talked about it before. It's double barrel over under Satori lightning feather. It is beautiful. It is incredible. It's everything I wanted. She gave it to me. I still talk about it. I still talk about it. This is the most incredible gift anyone's ever given to me. That's what worship is like, right? It's like remembering this amazing gift you've been given over and over and over again and responding by saying how great the giver is. What should flow out of a right understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone is worship, passionate worship, where we say, God, you have done this, and you're incredible. I'm nothing. I'm a worm. And yet you would come and give a gift like this? That's what it looks like. Worship should flow out of this doctrine, and work should flow out of this doctrine. Hear me carefully there. Work should flow out of this doctrine, not into this doctrine. Work, obedience, law-keeping, service should flow out of this doctrine. He has given you a great gift, and so you should respond by wanting to serve him. It should flow out of this doctrine, and Paul will talk about that later on. It's not the subject in this part of Romans. It'll be the subject in a later part of Romans, but I want to mention it because I don't want you to misunderstand the doctrine of justification as if it was an isolated, standalone doctrine, not accompanied by also a doctrine of sanctification where we serve the Lord in obedience to Him by faith. Okay? So, worship will flow out of this doctrine, and we want to do that in a minute, right? We want to sing, we want to worship in response to this, and work will flow out of this doctrine, and we want to do that when we leave this place today. Worship and work. Worship and serve as God's people. And if you're not His today, oh, run to Him. He justifies the ungodly. Like if that's the way you see yourself today, ungodly, dirty, broken, yeah, you're the kind of people he takes care of. You're the kind of people he saves. You're the kind of people he redeems. If you're here today and you're righteous and holy and you think you've got it all together, you're not ready. You're not ready to hear about this message of grace and forgiveness. You're still standing up talking about how great you are, but if you know you're, you know you're dirty, come to Jesus. He'll, he'll clean you. He'll save you. Let's stand together and pray. God, thank you for this amazing grace. Thank you for this amazing love. Thank you for this doctrine of justification by faith, not by works. We believe that you are the God who justifies the ungodly. You grant us a status that we have not earned and we do not deserve, not by works, but by faith as a gift. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Help us respond now as your people in worship. Help us respond now as your people with work to serve you out of gladness. God, we pray for folks who are in this room who are not yours. I pray especially for folks who come in here today and they, they're broken. They know they're dirty. 
they know they're needy, they know they're sinful, they would identify themselves as ungodly. God, show them that you are the God who justifies the ungodly as a gift by grace through faith. Show them that it's not about cleaning themselves up first. It's about you giving them a new heart and a new life and a new hope and changing them from this day forward. God, I pray that you'll seek and save the lost now in this place and that you would do it not not primarily for their sake, but for your own name, for the worship of your great name. God, have your way in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray.